0: How are you? Hope you're fine. This is the Shaggy Show. Ten,
1: nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three. Good luck to you, mate. Oh, it's the
2: Shaggy Show. Going to be some drama ahead? All I wanted was a pie.
1: And then I hatched out to
3: the day. Okay, bring the mic over.
1: He's ready to record. I see your mental condition is improving. <laughs> is it metaphorical? Is it, is it deep? Is it deep?
3: Good
2: boy, he's not all that shy, right.
4: Jeez. me me,
1: governor, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Hello, <laughs>
5: Six six nine. 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 Bonjour et bienvenue
2: au Hello. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of the Shire Life podcast with me, Paul the Shayetti How are you doing? Well, I'm all right. Um So, what are we going to be talking about this time? Well. Uh, this is the fifth time we've done this. What is, you say? Well, uh, we have the stars of Matinee Minutia here to tell us about the goings-on of the fifth season of Matinee Minutia, which has recently concluded. So we've got Toppy Smalley and DJ Starthage. And um, let's run the theme music. When we come back, we'll get them to tell us all about season five of Matinee Minutia. Run that theme music darling it's the shy life podcast
6: <laughs> yes but it's a positive thing for
3: the
7: high life the shy life
3: you won't find a cast of characters like this everywhere i mean i'll go anywhere anyway for a potato delicious hello
2: campers how are you you quite like a big bang don't you oh, yippee. go shy yeti oh i hope he hasn't found out
6: my secret do you think he has
1: I love the LHS, it's my favourite thing.
2: If you thought that was bad, just listen to this.
1: Yeah, I am strangely drawn to get the John's ankles as well. <laughs> I could eat more body weight in crisps every day. <laughs> yes, Has so, anyone seen my hot sausage? It's all gooey and yummy yummy yum yum yum. Oh I can't wait, I can't wait, to
7: it again.
2: It's the Shy Life Podcast. <laughs> I know that. Yeah. yeah. Luke mommy, I'm famous.
5: <laughs> Marvelous. Marvelous,
2: Paul. Hi there. And we're back. Toppy, DJ, how are you doing? Hey. hey.
8: Hi, way. You know, it's it's so good to see, hear you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's always an adventure in time travel when we <laughs> share our cup of uh what is it, bravery? <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, uh, this is becoming a this is becoming a bit of a habit. We've you know, what meeting once or twice at the end of a, a season of Mastermind, but this this is the fifth year we've we've done this now. So. Wow, totally. Um, yeah. It is. And um, yeah, so shall we start at the beginning? I suppose. <clears throat> I um, think so. I hear that that's a very good place to start. I, know, I did. I don't know because I did think maybe we should do the season backwards so that the latter episodes get the. I know we always say we, 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 we say too much at the start and then we have to rush at the end. So we could have done it backwards, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. I think there's maybe one or two less episodes this, this season as well. So it, we'll, we'll try and pace ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the first episode of season five was a film called two of a kind from 1983 with Olivia Newton, John, and, um, and John Travolta, um, who selected this one?
8: Oh, that would be my uh, guilt. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: so, yes, this, that was not judgment. That was just. Uh, um, <laughs> I, 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 I just wanted so, What? 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 Uh, what made you choose that one?
8: Well, from time to time, um, well, you know, we're not very timely. In fact, uh, Toppy and I have often joked that uh, the basis for many of our selections is the video store next door to the... The marionette theater, you know, the the one that's kind of a fusion of things is a lot of small towns have it's a it's an Indian restaurant and it's a video store and huh. they dabble a little little bit of everything, you know, it's <laughs> they, they lost the franchise, so they're not Hollywood video, they're Bollywood video. They yeah. they may not be a chain anymore, but uh, <laughs> two of a kind is something we picked in sort of a timely fashion. In that uh, yeah. uh, over that summer, we had uh, sadly yeah. lost Olivia Newton-John after I believe she had had two battles with cancer. Yeah, and um, she is someone that my father enjoyed. Uh, as many of my picks involve. Uh, of course, uh, many folks will remember her from the peak of her career uh, on screen in Greece and this was the next collaboration she had with John Travolta a number of years later, and I picked this because I'm one to introduce folks to a film that they may not have known about, but they enjoy the players, so to speak, so Um, I I was enamored by this because uh, there's just so many different personalities on this. You've got Olivia Newton-John, you've got John Travolta, and then just to throw a wrench in, or maybe uh, one of the spices you weren't expecting in the dish, we have Scavan Crothers, who was... (laughs) The uh, the you know the handyman guy on um, the Shining. <laughs> Talk right. about quite a different film.
3: <laughs> and maybe the the best uh, 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 little feature At casting coup was finding Oliver Reed to be uh, to play uh, Beasley, who's uh, well in this movie
2: actually the devil himself. <laughs> Yes, didn't you do um, some sort of uh, little watch party of this? Because this is all coming back to me now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just it's amazing because your seasons do co- cross across a year. It feels like about five years ago. We, But well, I'm thinking, I remember this must have been a watch party episode. Um, yes, well, I guess it was a year ago. A year sometimes passes weirdly these days. But. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure.
8: You know, it, it's uh, quite interesting because at the time this film came out, which was 1983, um, you know, home video was still in its uh, early days where people were just being able to afford a, a VCR. And one of the, um, the well, for lack of a better term, one of the shticks that was involved in this movie involved the devil himself playing with... The uh, the real world as so much as having a remote control. He was fast forwarding, rewinding, pausing, and you got to see it as it was happening. Mm-hmm. There was a there was even a food fight that they interrupted, and there might have been some inappropriate placement of appendages. <laughs> <laughs> ha. Ha.
3: Yeah, this of course uh, is something that you know reuniting Travolta and Olivia Newton-John uh, is enough to draw anybody back to the screen because they were so memorable in Greece and so likable together. It, uh, and this movie, they are together and they are likable, but uh, far, far too few scenes with them together and uh, just one of those wackadoodle plots Um and it's just, uh, all we really needed was Travolta and Olivia Newton-John on the screen, and it would have been a great movie. They, they It wasn't as great as it could have been. <laughs>
8: but there was a cute kitty.
2: <laughs> uh-huh. That solves everything, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. so- well, don't,
8: and don't forget, you also had... Um, one of the uh, characters or actors was it from Poltergeist? Toppy?
3: Yeah, Beatrice Straight.
8: Oh, she was a gem, and she had two. Like so many, I mean, because you know, when you put so many stars into a vehicle like this, it's hard to give them, you know, uh, uh, fair play, I guess you'd say. And she was just one of those gems. It's like, really that's all I get to see her her. I've got to watch something else with her in it. <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah that, that's what that's maybe there's so many characters um, besides Travolta and Olivia and John that, um, um, you know, that really don't find enough screen time to be, worth anything even god is voiced by gene hackman (laughs) it's just his voice but it is gene hackman anyways uh there's just too much going on in this movie and they they
2: uh you know it it doesn't quite work it uh, reminds me of one of my i'm always known for having weird dreams it, it, it's kind of <laughs> uh, it's probably why I, it took me a while to remember that, that I'd seen it as a film and it wasn't just one of my weird dreams <laughs> yeah. uh, now the next film you re- reviewed was how to make an American quilt from 1995 which starred Winona Ryder and Ellen Burstyn I don't really know that but I know it says um, it's based on a novel by Whitney Otto
8: Yeah, this was a film that uh, is, uh, well, going on that theme of tribute, of course, two of a kind being uh, in tribute to uh, um, Olivia Newton-John. How to Make an American Quilt was something that I chose because I I had a a, a fond association with it. Um, A favorite teacher of mine from my school years had recently passed away. And it sparked a memory when uh, I was in school. It was okay because I was in a small town. Uh, to watch films in class nowadays, of course, you know, you 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 have the copyright police coming through. But uh, we would often read a book and then see the film to compare and see what the process was and how to make an American quilt was something that I had seen on television at that time, um, a couple of years after it came out. And I remember bringing a copy of this into my favorite English teacher's classroom. And um, I just thought that this would be a great way to remember that teacher and to pay tribute to teachers because, uh, well, as as Toppy would say, uh, you know, might attest to like with Ellen Burstyn, because I think he's more familiar with her career each of the actors represented a character with a piece of the story.
3: Yeah. It's a a memorable movie, (laughs) Uh, a movie that should have, and was, and should only be uh, directed by a woman. And uh, that was Jocelyn Morehouse. And the cast is phenomenal. Uh, Winona Ryder, Ann Bancroft, Ellen Burson, Kate Nelligan, Alfred Woodard, uh, these are all strong actors and this is a sublime
2: wonderful wonderful movie yeah so it's what i recognize the title of more than knowing much about it but uh, um, but uh, moving on to the next film that's a relatively modern film for for Matinee Minutia. I might be wrong. Is it your most recent film? It's from 2021, Swan Song.
3: (laughs) Sometimes we do that.
8: I mean, on our way (laughs) in and out of the video store. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Those youngins, they keep talking about the things they've seen in the parking lot. (laughs) Uh, Well, Swan Song was something that I picked up on Uh, Over the summer, when we have Pride Months, a lot of the streaming services will categorize films. You know, uh, this is our collection of films recognizing Pride Month. They're directed by or acted by uh, queer personalities. And so uh, Swan Song was also perfect because I think in the timing... Uh, we were able to pay tribute to the star, Udo Kier, and I believe it was his birthday around then. But, you know, this is somebody who, again, um, I have the advantage of having a a co-host who may know a little bit more about a person's, you know, background, their career. Udo Kier has been in so many more things, and this is just simply my first glimpse of him. Uh, But hubby has uh made an effort to try to familiarize me and we have a copy of uh, well a film that toppy has warned me is possibly cringeworthy and uh, just an honorable mention it was um flesh for frankenstein um uh. <laughs> that <laughs> we have it in 3d no surprise but swan song's just um wonderful little uh small town story uh and it's set in a town in ohio um Toppy, what more would you say about Udo Kier?
3: Only that I'll never forget it. What (laughs) a movie. What a movie. I loved it so hard. Uh, First of all, uh, Jennifer Coolidge is (laughs) in many scenes, and she delivers. Well, so does the star uh, with a, a phenomenal... I don't know. I'll just call it a lifetime achievement performance. Like, I, I he's absolutely unforgettable. It's a man in his twilight years who is very reluctantly enlisted um, to return to his hometown where he was once queen of the hairdressers um, because uh, he's got to do the hair of, of someone Recently, passed, and only he can do it. Uh, and he doesn't want to, but he he he's uh, he does. He gets himself out of this dreary life he's been living in a nursing home, where we see him just. Uh, 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 what do you want to call that kind of behavior when you do something over and over? Repetitive behavior, folding napkins. I mean, what a dreary. Oh, life he's living, and he gets this request. He he's, he answers it incredibly reluctantly, but he does it, and he pushes himself out of this nursing home back to his hometown, where he reclaims his life in a lot of ways.
2: This is unforgettable stuff. Amazing. You better want to see it. I sure. In fact, I've just clicked on Amazon to put it in my um, potential and, watches. And by the way, Linda Evans is in it, so yes. Oh, I see it's by a particular... Well, it's distributed by Peccadillo Films, who do a lot of great um, LGBT releases that I, that I already own. So, yeah, that's another sort of tick of... Um, if they're distributing it, then they must think it's be really good as well. Oh, I see Linda Evans coming up on on, on the trailer. I I, I, should, I should put the screen down before I start getting distracted. Yeah, and uh, also
3: one of the best endings in a movie I've ever seen. Uh, I'm sure as hell not going to spoil it, but uh, something happens at the very end. We see something, and it just it just. It's amazing.
8: It it, it and uh, on that note, not giving away anything. It's a it's a very charming and heartwarming moment. That's almost a passing of the torch. Yeah,
2: yeah. Mm-hmm. So the next the next film that you discussed, I I think I have seen this, but I, it's been a while. But I was a, I was quite a fan of John Irving back in the nineties and read quite a lot of his books. But often, like I do, I read far too many. In one, in one sort of year or two and then kind of withdraw and then don't go back again for years the same happened with me with Stephen King for, for many years but uh, The World According to Garp is definitely one of the ones I read and I think I managed to chase a copy down uh, back in the 90s which would have been harder to do than it is today but uh, um, the film stars Robin Williams and Glenn Close uh, uh, who choose that one
8: <laughs> well, I'm the kooky uncle who, who used to uh, gift a uh, odd copy of a film that I would find in a you know in a discount bin, possibly because my parents groomed me growing up, and uh, you know whenever a special occasion would come, parents are always looking for an excuse to you know shop on a budget. So I used to get. Uh, a copy of a film that I recently enjoyed as a Christmas gift or a birthday gift. And so World According to Garp was actually gifted to me by a coworker, And this was uh, one of my first experiences sort of in the 21st century remote employment realm. This is somebody that worked for the same company as me, but is out of another office. And we have yet to date to meet in person we were co-workers for more than five years and just suddenly we gift each other at christmas time and i got my copy of world according to garp and well uh it was quite interesting because at the time as every person in a long-term relationship will tell you 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 hit little uh, you know bumps in the road every now and then and it's nice to have something to reflect on and the world according to garp helped uh, my husband and i laugh about life when we were going through some difficult times because just like the characters in the movie you know um uh, uh, it's like they say uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the theater or the forum or whatever you know you you uh, are just going about your business living your life and whoops <laughs> you know someone gets sick or someone gets in an accident and the world according to Garp is sort of like that. You know, you've got two people who are very much in love and they're getting basically uh, everything everyone is told is your goal in life. The cute little house, the, the the little white picket fence and your, you know, two and a half kids and bam, <laughs> something happens that just... Uh, Takes the car into the ditch, and you've got to figure out how to overcome that.
7: <laughs>
3: yeah, it's a, a very complex movie. Uh, it, it's an emotional uh, ride uh, and absolutely worth seeing. And it's very, very interesting considering this was 1982. So we're seeing three very early performances by these actors, Robin Williams, John Lithgow, and Glenn Close. This is really early on in their career. And by the way, Lithgow and Close were both nominated for Best Actors from this movie. So, uh, there's a lot here. It's also very worth noting that this movie, well, and it it comes from the book. Let's remember that this was uh, a best-selling book. But the character that John Lithgow plays is a trans person, and considering it's 1982, mm. uh, you, I don't think they make one misstep that makes it cringy. I think they do a really good job. You can see this today, and feel like they done his they done <laughs> this character good. I mean, they did not. It is not at all cringey. It's almost as if it could have been made today uh, with, you know, our current woke, um, you know, sensibilities. So that's in and of itself. The John Lithgow character is almost worth just watching it to see how they handle that. But it's a, uh, you know, it's a roller coaster and I'm not even sure, I guess, I'm not sure I can call this a feel good movie, it wants to be, <laughs> but it's pretty heavy. It's Ooh. pretty heavy. Oh, and a Tandy's in it. So oh, there.
8: yes! <laughs> One of my favorite 80s personalities.
2: It's fu- it's funny, um, uh, going back to the book, and it's, and it's the same with a lot of famous authors, that their later works are really, you know, the titles, you know, that you hear the titles, you know the titles, uh, whether it be Stephen King or it be John Irving, they're, they're their early works, uh, their titles are really well-known, but it's harder to know if you want to come and perhaps read a Stephen King book from 2020 or, or a John Irving book from the 21st century, that you wouldn't necessarily know which one to start because the name, the ti- somehow the titles don't carry the same sort of weight because the, the focus on them isn't as much as, as a writer gets older or, or, or probably not just writing, but, uh, well, according to Gart must be one of John Irving's um, mm. most famous titles.
3: I think so. And I, I never read the book and I never saw the movie until we watched or I watched it for Matt and a Minutia. and named nusha And I'm sure glad I, I finally saw it. Good
8: heavens. What was wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, so tonight we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. There's three of us here at the roulette wheel. So we're going to start things off by each taking a turn and talking a little bit about tonight's film. And uh, namely, we're going to tell uh, uh, the listeners our initial impressions. If, If this was the first time that you saw this film, or maybe you've seen it before, but ultimately... What was your takeaway and, you know, um, your your first thoughts about it? So the first um, round goes to our guest of honor here. Matt, uh, was this the first time you'd seen Home for the Holidays or had you heard of it before tonight's show?
9: Uh, actually, I'd seen it twice before, mm-hmm. uh, maybe once every decade. Um, and it's funny because I remember – Way back
0: <laughs> um,
9: I remember focusing on the love the 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 whole Dylan McDermott, you know um, the whole love aspect of it. and um, I thought the okay, so clarify this for me real quick, please. So who's the oldest sister?
8: Oh, Joanne, she's the the high strung one.
9: I thought, for some reason, when I was watching this, I thought Holly Hunter's character said she was the older sister.
8: Hmm. Maybe I just assumed because of uh, their relationships with each other.
9: Yeah, see, that's what I thought, too. Because I always assumed that, you know, Claudia was the oldest. But I specifically remember a line where Holly said that she was the oldest. Hmm. So... Which threw me, because the dynamics of the family, that is definitely not the oldest to youngest child dynamics, if that's the way it is. <laughs> right. So, that's why, you know. But the thing is, is, like, life gives you different perspectives. When I was younger, I focused on the love uh, aspect of it. And I focused on that. I thought that, um, uh, what's her name? The oldest, the, the Joanne. Mm-hmm was just a, a big, I don't want to cuss on your little show, uh, a horrible, horrible person. Oh. Let's just say she was, she was, I just couldn't stand her. I thought she was the biggest bee that there was. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God, how do people like this exist? Just cut her out of, her, of, of your life and go <laughs> away. And just pretend she doesn't exist. However, with life's expect, you know, uh, experiences, And the things that I went through with my parents, especially in the last decade or so, watching this, I had more sympathy for her. I hated that she was homophobic Mm -hmm. uh, and that she was mean to her little brother. But the whole thing about the parents and, you know, I'm the one that has to take care of them while you guys guys go follow your dreams and all that. I kind of sympathized with her a little bit more. So that was interesting to to experience this time watching it.
7: Mm-hmm.
9: Other than that, I thought it was a fun show. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and I will tell you something, whoever, it, uh, they must have found somebody's house and just said, no, leave everything here.
8: Oh, yes. And
9: we'll just film around it. Otherwise, whoever put together those sets needed 10 awards because <laughs> those were the most intricately done uh, suffocating, claustrophobic stuff everywhere. Sets they were phenomenal.
2: So, following what according to Garp, you focused on Home for the Holidays from nineteen ninety five. Now, now that I, I do know that one, I almost thought felt like it it was you guys who'd introduced me to it, but I think it might have actually been Toby because, um, or or you've even. Another American friend of mine, um, because cause I definitely... Because it's, it's a, more of a Thanksgiving movie, isn't it, than, than a Christmas one. Although, to a UK audience, you'd almost forget. And it almost feels like Christmas, because, of course, the two holidays close together. But It, it does. Uh, I, I can see why they
3: chose Thanksgiving instead of Christmas. but yeah. But it's definitely... When they say home for the holidays, I think we all you know most of us uh, move out of the house and and we do often go home for the holidays. And as we all know, families are complicated and this movie covers it so well and the awkwardness and the oh, Just family dynamics are what makes this movie work in an extraordinary way. And Jodie Foster directed this, and this is so good. And Jodie Foster, if you're listening, please direct more movies. Please, you are so good. Anyways, this is a great movie.
8: Certainly, it was a great movie. And, uh, you know, I think this is one of those films... Uh, It does happen where there's a mutual interest because I know that just sort of conversationally, I had been aware of this movie for a while. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the first time I'd heard about it is when in one of Andy Vera's old shows where it was sort of a staple that that time of the year, the, you know, the season is sort of marked by viewing this and, um, I certainly thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, You know, this is one of those films that has uh, celebrated actors in it. Anne Bancroft is the mother, and this is one of her last film roles. And this is one of those examples of me catching someone late in their career and me wanting to go back and experience their other accomplishments. You know, it's like, I'm late to the party. What? What? this Ian Bancroft person who is so terrific as the mother who has just been beaten down by the expectations of raising her family. And, you know, you you have Robert Downey Jr. in this film, too. And it's so perfect because, uh, as, as Toppy was saying, Jodie Foster directed this film. And, you know, even though... Uh, I mean, I I think it's it's a person's choice, and if they want to lead a public life, and you know, if you're if your career is about sharing stories and a direction, it's nobody's business <laughs> who you share your dinner with. Uh, but this is an example, sort of like um, uh, the world according to Garp, where we got. You know, a a sort of a unique opportunity to portray a transgendered person with John Lithgow in the 90s, well, well before either country, the U.K. or the U.S., had any sort of legal right to marriage equality. Here you have Robert Downey Jr., who's playing the brother who is an outcast because he's gay. And, you know, one of the dirty little secrets is that he's gotten married. And that's part of the film. And I don't know that anyone out there could have been a better choice than Jodie Foster, who we know nowadays that she was, you know, uh, keeping things a secret. But it was just a, a terrific representation of that period because. Uh, as many of us know, you know, you, you you don't necessarily feel equal in your own family, especially considering, you know, we don't all have the same life experiences.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll I'll just reiterate that it's it's very much an ensemble cast, but it's uh, particularly interesting, as DJ said, to see Ann Bancroft; she's so good in it. But also, I can't think of a damn thing Holly Hunter's done that I don't like. It's she's amazing. She's amazing in this movie. And after getting so used to Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man Tony Stark, it is so great to see him long long before that, in this role doing. An incredible job, and also, even Steve Gutenberg is good in this movie. How <laughs> did that happen, anyways? This is a treat, and uh, it is, a, it is a stinging comedy, stinging uh, comedy. It is so worth seeing.
8: And we would be remiss if we didn't mention Charles Derning in this as the dad. I mean, between his roles in uh, on the silver screen. In real life, this man made a living doing dancing, <laughs> and you know he he may not have the body of the dancer later in life, but there are these terrific moments where he and his wife are still trying to keep the flame burning, and they dance in their kitchen.
7: <laughs> yeah,
3: mm-hmm. he's. Uh, it's these performances are, are
8: real treats to see. We're digging up an interview with our favorite Alice Morning uh, news interviewer, Miss Bobby Wyant, and she's interviewing Jody Foster, the director of the film.
0: Jody, congratulations. Oh, thank you. Oh, Home for the Holidays. Thank My you. kind of movie. My oh, I'm glad movie. you liked it. Oh great. Oh yes, 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 yes. I had heard, you know, good things about mm. it. But um Wonderful cast, uh, very honest movie. Yeah, very sincere, raw, real film, I think. What do you want audiences to take home from this movie?
5: Well, I want them, you know, to to see themselves in some ways and to have to try for a little bit more understanding between a little bit more tolerance between them and their family because you have a lot to learn from them and Holly Hunter's character comes to the to, comes to the film thinking she has nothing to learn from these people or this experience and rolling her eyes and looking at the time and looking at the clock and thinking when's this going to be over and by the end of the movie she realizes how valuable that is and and how that those moments together as imperfect
0: as they may be in some ways are really the point in life. So. Of course I think that statistically, holiday time is a time of year when greater numbers of people go into depression for one reason or another.
5: Oh, that's true. I've always had, uh, you know, Christmas has always been a weird time for me because, uh, you know, you you do all the traveling and you get there and the kids are screaming and you say, but I don't have any, or, you know, there's just all that kind of conflict. um, And it it is a time where... (laughs) Where you're meant to, uh, to put your hands around a table and to basically say, oh, I vow unconditional love to these people that are driving me crazy. And that's, uh, that's pretty hard to do.
8: Good evening, and welcome to the beautiful, historical Marionette Theater. The holidays are upon us, and this evening we're visiting a holiday, a Christmas classic set in the late 40s. It's a comedy drama and uh, many folks will have seen it for the first time on late night television, don't you know? Well, please grab your seats. The show is about to begin.
2: Now, your next choice, you went really far back to 1947, for Miracle on 34th Street, um, uh, uh, starring Maureen O'Hara and Natalie Wood, I, I, I don't think I've—I don't think I've ever seen that.
3: Oh, uh, wash your mouth.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more. I
3: think I may have chosen this, didn't I? You did. Yeah, and and listen, I grew up uh, watching this on TV every year. It was often played on television in America. In the 70s. And uh, it, you know. It's it's just like. It's a perennial classic for me. And uh, I'm glad we did it. Uh, Maureen O'Hara. You know. Uh, and John Payne. Are very likable. Uh, a young. Uh, Natalie Wood. Plays the girl. And of course Edmund Gwynn. Is unforgettable. As a really. Really authentic likable Santa. In fact, the conceit of the whole movie is, and it uh, it kind of, you kind of never really know, is he really Santa? Or is he just kind of a pleasantly goofy, crazy old man? And uh, it pulls it off. Uh, What can I say? If you haven't seen it, I I can't imagine anyone watching this movie and not loving it. One of the, really fun things about this movie is that, uh, it features, uh, the, the, the famous Thanksgiving day Christmas, uh, uh, parade in New York city. And they actually took their cameras and their actors to New York city to actually put them in places where they're caught. In the real parade, so that's not a, a soundstage uh, a fake parade. It's the real Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and it's kind of that makes it kind of interesting. A little bit of realism there, and uh, all you know. I mean, they're still doing Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It's still a thing on TV, and it's kind of interesting seeing it. Uh, way back then in, in 1947 or 46 so that's interesting and uh, you know uh, there's a little bit of magic magical realism magical feeling uh and it's a lot of fun
8: yeah and uh, as somebody who has uh you know identified themselves as a retail widower because my other half has worked in stores, and, you know, we, we didn't always have uh, days off together. Miracle on 34th Street is just a, a very sort of a glimpse at that period in the world. That's
3: right. You know, Maureen O'Hara is your husband. Right? <laughs> she, is, she dedicates her entire life to that store. <laughs> uh and it's it, it i i and she's clearly she's a single mother but she's clearly not available because she works so hard in the store
8: that's your husband yes and it, the the uh, terrific thing is that they actually did use a real store for this original pic, uh, picture back in 47 and uh You know, just a a side piece of trivia, because that's what we uh, do at Name Minutia. Years later, when they remade the film, they could not get (laughs) the sign-off or endorsement for Macy's to use the Macy's name, because they don't, you know, they didn't want to risk the chance of it, of... uh, children questioning whether or not there was a Santa Claus so we made up a store name
3: <laughs> oh really I didn't know that yeah this was remade uh, in 2009 so uh, so they didn't use Macy's huh
8: no they came up with the name they called it Coles but of course it's not spelled the way that the more recent Coles is it was colE apostrophe yes
3: <laughs> yeah now who was Santa in the remake uh, what's his face? Oh goodness! Uh, oh, he—he he was in uh, uh, the first uh, dinosaur movie. There, that, um, oh boy, he plays the guy that finances the expedition. Uh, Spielberg's first special effects dinosaur movie. I oh, call yeah. it a dinosaur movie because I can't remember
8: R- the name. Richard day. Attenborough. Yeah, isn't he Santa? Yes, he is, as well yeah, as okay. the little Goyle from uh, the the uh, movie Matilda. Yeah,
3: she's precious. Um, hard hard to choose between those two actors, Edmund Gwenn, the Santa, uh, and the uh, the Santa in the two thousand nine. They're they're both pretty authentic, but I'll stick with my Edmund
2: Gwenn from nineteen forty seven. He's the best Santa. We you've got the Return of Santa in your next choice. Uh, I think this was your Christmas um, episode, Get Santa, from 2014, with Jim Broadbent.
8: (gasps) Yes, oh, Jim Broadbent, that that dear older gentleman that I first experienced watching in the Jane Horrocks film from the 90s, Little Voice, with Brenda Blythe, and I think we did that uh, the other year. Uh, or maybe last year, but yeah, get Santa. That was on my radar because I think it was just this last year ago. Netflix introduced us to the the uh, more adult, uh, young adult Kit Connor on Heartstopper, and this film, almost ten years ago now, twenty fourteen, had Kit Connor as a little boy and uh, he was uh, in a complicated relationship with his parents because his dad wasn't in the picture. He uh, had just come out of uh, doing some time in the clink. (laughs) (laughs) And this is so fantastic because, you know, um, here we have Kit Connor in the beginning of his career from not long ago. But Jim Broadbent, who, you know, he's been in many things, including some cameos in the Harry Potter films. And um you also have up and coming Jody Whitaker, who has been the most recent thirteenth Doctor on Doctor Who. Yeah. And, how about that? Uh so this this was just a magical thing because I got to see Jody in a role before she was on Doctor Who. And um, the character was not very different as far as her being a mom on this and being blonde because of course she has not always been. Um, I'm for you may recall Paul, uh, the the series that uh, Jody who was most popular for. Uh, I think it was with David Tennant, that uh, uh, sort of yeah. detective beach show. Yeah. anyways, but you yeah, get Santa. Oh goodness. Another Santa Claus experience, Toppy. How did you feel about Jim Broadbent?
3: Oh, he's very likable. Uh you can't help but like him. Uh and uh yeah, I, I mean it's it's um there, there there's really no surprises in this movie. Everything unfolds kind of pretty much the way you think. Uh there there's no twists or turns. But still, it's very likable. I enjoyed it much more than I thought I would.
2: That uh, Jodie Whittaker show you were talking about, well, the show that she was in was Board Church. Oh, yes. Um, actually, there's a film um, that, if you haven't done it, I don't think you've done it, uh, that she's also in called Venus from <gasps> 2006. That's her fi- feature film debut. And that that's sort of like a... Um, Older characters and she being the younger character in it, and that's a good, that's a good film. That seems like a very Matthew Minutia type of film as well.
8: I'll yeah, have to track uh, that down, a lot like
3: Miracle on 34th Street, um, where you've got Santa. This movie doesn't quite play with that conceit uh, because you. This is really Santa. I mean, he's really got magic reindeer, and it's really Santa. It's not like so it's a little different, but it's charming. It's sweet. It's Christmassy, and a lot of people will love it for that. And and uh, it, it's a nice movie.
8: And uh, not really a spoiler, but you know, part of the story is a rescue because Santa's sleigh breaks down, and uh, Kit Connor, as a young boy, has to. Save Christmas, basically, with his recently reunited dad who just came out of the clink. <laughs> and we get to see how Santa uh, tries to cope on the other side of the wall. And it's, it's actually oh, that is, comical.
3: Okay, that, that is maybe... Okay. <laughs> Santa trying to be cool and being coached to be, you know, a man you don't mess with in prison is a killer it is so funny my god it's worth seeing just for that just for that it is so awesome
2: yeah. now moving into the new year your first uh, episode concerned the tv show gilmore girls which ran from 2000 to 2007 it's a show that i know the title of but i don't know much about
8: Oh goodness. Uh, Well, Gilmore Girls has such a great cast. I mean, um, his name Ed Herman plays the grandfather in this. And of course, this is the later years of his career. He uh, got his start in the late 80s in such films as Bette Midler and Lily Tomlin in Big Business. He plays a lawyer. But uh, plays a similar type in this as is, is one of the supporting cast. Gilmore Girls is something that I was introduced to by a roommate that I had in Colorado. This was a college kid who grew up in a single-parent family. And um, it was a few years uh, apart from my age. So he had a greater appreciation because this is what he watched uh, as he was in his high school years. The Gilmore Girls is such a a perfect medley of the the story of being a single parent and being in a small town, because it's it's also about you know being under the microscope when you're in a small town like that. Everybody knows your business, so of course everyone knows the the uh, the young mother who stubbed her toe, as they say, when you have a kid and you don't have a ring on your finger and well <laughs> it's no mistake that uh, her parents the grandparents in this were well to do because uh you know they had high standards and well she fell from grace <laughs> <Yeah>. it's just
7: <sighs>
8: but um you know gilmore girls has such a wonderful cast in fact uh, how we, um told me or showed me rather that uh, like edward herman who plays the grandfather um the lady who played the grandmother on this is somebody of a of a celebrated career and she got her start on stage and let's see i'm looking up her information um let's see kelly bishop She's been in a lot of things, and in fact, I think she's in um, oh, sort of a mobster show now on uh, Showtime these days. But in the '80s, she was in uh, a musical, and I'm forgetting the name of it right now. Uh, But uh, if you look up Kelly Bishop and uh, you know musical, you'll see quite a few things from the '80s when it was all song and dance stuff. But Gilmore Girls just so heartwarming about the, the small town experience and uh, a single parent trying to make amends from that fall from grace. Mm-hmm.
3: Um, as a, a TV series, uh, it's got a nice feel. The characters are interesting. Uh, the performances are charming and And really quite nice, and I would say, by and large, each episode is self-contained, but it's got nice continuity in that it references itself and past episodes, and there are undercurrents uh, of story arcs that that uh, that run through the whole thing, and then are fleshed out in certain episodes. So it's it's great in that way. It, It is so. You know, off the path of what network, uh, uh, what a network series used to be on TV. You know, it was a police drama. It was a medical drama. This is so far more sophisticated than anything like TV used to be, and it's commendable just on that itself, um, and and nice. Really nice stories, um, uh, that that and characters above all and beyond you care about them, so this is a great series.
8: And it introduced us to Melissa McCarthy at the beginning of her career. Um, and uh, just an aside, I, I looked back and Kelly Bishop was associated with a chorus line in the 80s. In fact, she won a Tony Award for Best Performance.
2: Yeah, totally worth seeing. Moving on. Um, to your next uh, film, it, you chose Jupiter Ascending from 2015. Um, who chose that one?
8: Oh, that would be me. <laughs> <laughs> this is something that is sort of a, a related thing. In fact, uh, I, I will give you a sort of a, a kernel, a breadcrumb, if you will, going into our sixth season. And I know we'll get to more of that later. But we're inspired sometimes by things that are related. And Jupiter Ascending is something that I had been thinking about for a while because it has strong resemblances to other things we've talked about before, including Flash Gordon, and this was very inspired by that sort of, uh, you know, uh, spacefaring adventure with a, a hero that's battling an unknown force. And, of course, everybody in their ordinary, everyday life on Earth is unbeknownst to this. Just, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of like Men in Black, where there's danger everywhere in everyday life, but most people are just oblivious to it. And this uh this just uh reminded me a lot of Flash Gordon in the grandeur and the spectacle of these scenes and the costumes and I'll leave But you
3: but in but, but in no way in <laughs> no way tongue in cheek why mm. Flash Gordon this is this movie is there's, there's none of the uh, wink, wink. We're being clever, right? Um, yeah, but but yeah, I get I get the. Um, well, it creates a world, and we know that the people that created this, they wrote it and directed. And I'm mm. going to pronounce the name wrong, but I know DJ <laughs> knows how. kowski
8: w- Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
3: Okay. Um, uh, I don't think we call them the Rakowski brothers anymore, but the, they're the Rakowski sisters. Interestingly enough, uh, and uh, they did the Matrix. So if you remember the kind of things you saw in the Matrix that you, you that made your jaw drop, like I've never seen that before in a movie. This movie has similar things. Your your jaw's going to drop. You're going to go holy. Jesus how did they do that that's amazing uh, so and and interestingly enough yes there's CGI in this but but they much more used to practical effects and you're not gonna believe what you see uh, other than that I mean uh, it's a space opera it's makes a world um, you know I, I Talk about, you know, caring for the uh, about the characters and what happens to them like uh, Gilmore Girls uh, is probably what's really lacking for me is I, 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 there's a lot going on. And at the end of the day, I'm not sure I care a hell of a lot, but you will see things that will make your jaw drop. And there's a lot of other reasons to see this movie. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, you know,
8: 2015
3: was a long time ago and, uh, it's amazing what they did in this movie, special effects wise.
8: I mean, the other part of this that was so appealing to me in that, you know, it, it sort of, um, recreates the, the, uh, energy and the excitement of Flash Gordon is that it has Mila Kunis in it in possibly one of her uh, first film roles outside of her run on that 70s show not only is it a wachowski film but we also have some other talents in here that we've just been introduced to around that time like i mean who wouldn't like to have their day saved by channing tatum on rocket boots <laughs>
10: uh,
8: uh, and uh, we have i have to say
3: maybe This may be shallow, and I don't care. Uh, The fact that he's in this movie, and he's stunning, helps a lot.
8: (laughs) (laughs) But we also have Maria Doyle Kennedy, and she is uh, playing the lead character's mother, who's, you know, she's a... A lady who gets, uh, well, she's a toilet cleaner, Is Toppy would say.
3: Yes, that's right. I forgot about that. <laughs> Yay. She's a, she's a goddamn toilet cleaner in space.
8: <laughs> this is the one time Toppy had an opportunity to see his life's fantasies played out on screen. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: but, God, I forgot all about that.
8: Uh, Maria Doyle Kennedy plays... Uh, the lead character's mother. And some of you may remember Maria de Doyle Kennedy was in a really wonderful, I want to say UK series, but I think it was filmed in Canada. And it was, um, oh, that show about the clones, Paul. Do you remember was, the show about the clones? Not the humans. It was Orphan Black. Oh, yeah. So Maria Doyle Kennedy was a mother figure in the Orphan Black series, which, you know, had uh, uh, the wonderful Tatiana Maslany. But anyways, Channing Tatum, Maria Doyle Kennedy, and -and up-and-coming Eddie Redmayne, who most of you will know from the Fantastic Beasts series. And this was a, a treat to see, because as I say sometimes, I like to experience actors out of their element. And uh, my favorite thing is to watch films where comedic actors are in serious roles. They're they're branching out. Well, Eddie Redmayne is playing a baddie in this, and that's the polar opposite of his characters in Fantastic Beasts. So, you know, if, if you have enjoyed him as a good guy, see, see how powerful he can be as a bad guy.
7: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, uh, your next film, I actually um, confused this with another film to start with because it's Murder by Natural Causes, and initially I thought, oh, it's that one with Peter Falkin," but that's Murder by Death. But the weird thing is, I read that Murder by Natural Causes was made by the makers of Columbo. So uh, there was a Peter Falk connection, but it's not the film I think it was, so I don't know anything about this one.
3: So I chose this one, and I, I chose it because I, I saw this when it originally aired in 1979. Um, <laughs> <laughs> television, it was made for television, uh, and I never forgot it. It was just a clever, clever, fast-moving mystery. It's a crime mystery, and it was created by... Uh, the. Uh, the, it was written by uh, by the creators of Columbo. It's got a lot of of that. I mean, they're good at that stuff, uh, crime mysteries, and this movie has it all. Uh, it's a very small cast, um, uh, and it's Hal Holbrook, Catherine Ross. I mean, these are veterans. Uh, they don't miss a beat. Richard Anderson. Uh, we know him. From Six Million Dollar Band and the Bionic Woman. He was, uh, who'd you call him? Who is he in that? Uh, oh. anyway.
8: Yeah, oh, uh, Ma- um, Max Goldman. Was uh,
3: that his name? Uh, geez, now I can't remember. But anyways, <laughs> he
8: was, he was, he was Steve
3: Austin's boss man. Uh, Oscar Goldman. Oscar Goldman. Oh, God. Yes. Okay, anyways. And then Barry Bostwick. Yeah, Barry Bostwick is in it. And, uh. This is a tight, nice little, uh, you don't really know what's going on kind of movie. I mean, you it's clear what's going on, but you're led down paths uh, that turn out to be false. So it's clever. It moves fast. It's a mystery uh, and very satisfying. And uh, it sounds old, 1979, and it is, but... It, it's a nice piece of television uh, film, and um, the thing I, I I didn't know until I researched it is, uh, you know, Columbo, the first iteration of Columbo by uh, Richard Levison and William Link, was a stage play. That was their first iteration of Columbo, and then they brought it to, to a television movie. And then it became, you know, an ongoing uh, event. Uh, uh, But this movie feels exactly like, oh, this this was written for the stage. This is another thing they wrote for the stage and then said, eh, uh, let's make it into this TV show. Uh, Because it plays. I mean, you could see everything in this movie. You can see, I could see exactly how they would have done this on one set. And that's not a put-down. I mean, ever see Arsenic and Old Lace? One set. Uh, And it's great. Anyways, come to find out, apparently it was not originally made for the stage. But the two uh, writers... uh, Or someone later on, uh, I'm not sure when, it was after 79, uh, it was made into a stage play, a very successful stage play. So it started as a TV movie, but it was made into a play, and it had a great run someplace. I don't know if it was Broadway or not. But anyways, that's, uh, that's Murder by Natural Causes.
8: And what appealed to me about this was when uh, you know the the suggestion was pitched that we watch this, is uh, Hal Holbrook is most famously known as being Dixie Carter's husband, of uh, designing women fame. Of course, we've talked about that that installment in uh, Americana, <laughs> but Hal Holbrook in the earlier days of his career and as Toppy was saying someone I remember from the uh, you know six million dollar man and Bionic Woman Richard Anderson then you get Barry Boswick but this this, this is really uh, one of those films that although it takes place in a contained set you know there aren't that many different settings y- you have to pay attention because it's a game of spin the bottle basically and it's a dangerous one
3: <laughs> yeah I think uh, it's not what
8: you expect, and it pulls it off very well. All righty, so, Tompi, this is a TV movie. It's sort of the sweet spot here at Matt Minutia, because we often talk about film, and we often talk about television, but every once in a while, we get the perfect... Middle ground, and that would be this murder by natural causes. Now, this aired. On Saturday, because, you know, people didn't have uh, live, uh, they didn't go out Wha- to the bars Wha- or anything back then, w- you know? People didn't have lives. <laughs> That's what you were about to say. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, blah, 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 let me rewind that. Actually, back then, people used to plan their lives around the boob tube because we didn't have home video. We, you couldn't record your favorite programs and you certainly didn't have a DVR, that was a lot, lot later, but uh, people used to plan their time around the TV, and uh, you know, it, it was right around then that you had these shows like All in the Family, that uh, everybody talked about uh, on Monday at work. So this was a TV movie that aired on Saturday, and it was, uh, well, it was time to be around Valentine's Day. It came out on February 17th in 79. It aired at 9 p.m., so the kiddos should have been tucked into bed by then. And it was on CBS. And, uh, of course, uh, it goes without saying that that's also the home of designing women in the 80s had something to do with hale holbrook possibly um but if you were uh, up and around back then when this came out something else you could have been watching if you missed murder by natural causes that night uh you could have been seeing on abc one of the uh, long running show episodes of the love boat War because this was a you know TV movie, it was more than an hour. Also, in that time slot from the nine to ten time, would have been Fantasy Island over there on ABC, and then over on NBC because there were only three networks back then, folks. You could have been watching BJ and the Bear, it was a show about a truck driver whose uh, companion was a primate. He was an ape or an orangutan. I, I forget which.
7: I can't remember.
3: Yeah, it was basically like a TV version of that Clint Eastwood movie.
8: Oh, yes. Any which way but loose with Ruth Gordon. Ruth Gordon. Everything's <laughs> coming back to Ruth Gordon or uh, Star Trek. Oh, yes. that that.
3: Why will- wasn't Ruth Gordon ever on Star Trek?
6: Dick Sanik called me on the telephone and said, I have a wonderful project for you, and it's called One Million Years B.C. I realized that it was a dinosaur movie. And I called him back and I said, I don't want to make a dinosaur movie. He said, but you have no choice in the matter, dear. You're under contract here, so you'll go. Oh. The picture i had just done previous to that Also, which was a Fox release, was Fantastic Voyage, and I thought, I'm caught in sci-fi hell. I mean, first of all, I'm swimming through the human bloodstream at microscopic size, and now I've got to fight off dinosaurs. I mean, what's wrong with this picture? I'm sure that Lana Turner never started her career like this.
10: (laughs) The
6: thing that changed my mind completely was... The, the, the next issue of Time magazine came out, and when I got it on my doorstep, it had the whole issue was about swinging London and how everything was happening in London, and there was this whole cultural revolution, Carnaby Street and all this, and I thought, well, that can't be too bad, you know, I'll go to London, I'll do this turkey, and then everybody will forget about it, and I'll have myself a great time. <laughs> So I sort of happily got on the plane, you know, and to, to go to, to London and to shoot in the Canary Islands, which is far removed from the streets of London. And we're, we were shot at all these scenes on the top of Tenerife and Lanzarote islands in the canary islands and you had to drive from a pensione all the way out to where it was just lava rock no telephone poles or anything and it was snowing it was freezing freezing cold and i got the worst case of tonsillitis and i almost died from it i was frozen frozen solid
2: next up uh, you went back to 1966 to discuss one million years bc with Raquel welsh did
3: Johnson we do that? Pitcher. Yeah, sorry. I I think that's another one we chose to do because someone passed. Rocco Welch passed. Yes. And uh, we just we just decided. Well, Raquel Welch made a lot of movies, but the the movie that landed her on the map and made her a household image and name uh, because that that iconic picture of her in those uh, animal skins. I mean, that picture was everywhere, and it launched a oh. career. Um, but one million b- years BC is is a science fiction. Well, yeah, it's science fiction, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's 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 a it's it's a vision of what life might have been like in caveman years. Now, don't ask me why humans and dinosaurs are together, but whatever. <laughs>
7: uh, it's
3: fun. It's 1966. It, uh, it's, it's got, um, you know, uh, is it Ray Harryhausen? Does he do the effects in this?
8: If it's now not him, it's one of his contemporaries. Yeah. Anyways, uh, look, I mean, if you want, if
3: you want to see the movie that launched your career, you know, this is it. And it's fun, a little dated, but it's fun.
8: Oh, it, it, and it, it's just, uh, you know, it's a perfect example of you know this name, but see how they got their start. And as Toppy was saying, her uh, Raquel Welch's character in this film was uh, a lot of people's uh, image of beauty for that period. And you know, we even get to and I think you you mentioned this Toppy on that show was in Shawshank Redemption when that was made into a film. The poster of Raquel Welch was in the film it was in the prison cell covering up their <laughs> escape path
3: that's right yeah um that was you know a wink and a nod uh but it 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 it, it was timely because everybody had that poster that that poster <laughs> was everywhere by the way i just looked it up and yes the great and i do mean great harry uh, uh oh god his name just Harry Harryhausen. That's not his name. Ray? Ray. Thank you! Uh, Ray Harryhausen, who did the special effects for so many movies in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and he did stop-motion photography or animation, I should say. And he was brilliant at it. This is the kind of thing that made the original King Kong move on the screen. Stop-motion animation where 3D models were uh, animated, and he just came. He, he just became the guy. If you needed that kind of thing, he was the man to go to. And they got him for one million BC. And uh, so the the creatures and and whatnot that uh, you know plague our poor cavemen <laughs> and ladies uh, are done by him. And uh, you know, it's it's not CGI. It's something, something different, and it's got its own feel. A lot of people, you know, dismiss it. But uh, for me, Ray Harryhausen has a place in cinema history that he's a king. Uh, I, he's like, wow, this man, wow. Anyways, so if you just want to see something he did, it's another reason to see One Million Years BC. <laughs>
2: Um, next up, you chose the film The Paper Chase from 1973, a uh, comedy-drama. I don't know that one. It's got Timothy Bottoms, Lindsay Wagner, and John Hausman.
3: Yeah, I chose this one. Again, this is a movie I didn't see when it came out. I was far too young. I, if I had seen it in 1973, I don't think I would have appreciated it. I saw it around 1980. Um, and, uh, no, it would have been before cause I saw it on TV. Uh, anyways, this is a brilliant movie for, to me, to me, uh, uh, about a student who's, who's going to law school, you know, one of the best law schools, the best. And it shows his first year, uh, from beginning to end. And uh, it shows his academic life. It shows his personal life. Um, The performances are are brilliant. It it has the mark of an early seventy three movie, in that it feels like an early seventies movie. Totally different from uh, what Hollywood used to be. These performances are natural. The filming is on location. There's nothing stagey about it. And uh, you've got great performances, a great story. Lindsay Wagner, of course, the Bionic Woman, she was famous for that. But you see her here in this movie, and you can see, like, you know, damn lady, you were good. You were good. And you should have been in more movies. But glad you got the biotic woman it's such up for life mm-hmm. but she was she's uh, she's great Timothy bottoms such a natural performance in this movie my god it's an amazing and and uh, and of course the, the guy that plays uh, the the big professor the big scary professor <laughs> uh, it's it's the performance of his career I mean it came late in life for him. But this is, it. I mean, it's the movie he was born to play. Why can't I remember his name?
8: John Hausman.
3: Thank you! <laughs> John Hausman was involved in, in theater and movies forever, like Ruth Gordon was. But, but he started acting in a couple of movies, and he landed this role... But it it, defi- I mean, it defined him for the rest of his life. And he was very, you know, well, not fairy, but he was in his later years when he did this. And it, it is a, I mean, what a great character. Anyways, <clears throat> uh, I, I can't say enough about this movie.
8: Oh, I, I personally think that if John Houseman had been born a generation later he would be the voice of our car navigations <laughs> uh,
3: why hasn't he, somebody done that oh my oh, god
8: that that man had such a presence and of course my first introduction to him was on a 80s sitcom he played the grandfather on Ricky Schroeder's television debut Silver Spoons and then uh, a few short years later he was in a movie with bill murray which was a modern take on a christmas carol that one was called scrooged but he had a performance in that where he was just simply the narrator he was reading the dickens story for the purpose of the film and and bill murray said of course everybody's old favorite old fart reading a book Uh (laughs) But this was, you know, years and years earlier. I don't even know that John Hausman's character was supposed to be close to retirement. But he was he was the man to impress because he was the professor. He wasn't even called, you know, professor or whatever. They just called him by his last name, Kingsfield. Yeah. You knew that he was the guy you had to impress if you wanted to be successful in your law career. Mm-hmm. And... You know, um, the the big appeal to me on this was, of course, Lindsay Wagner, because of course, uh, I grew up watching reruns of Bionic Woman, and what a charming presence! I mean, it uh, it takes a amount of talent, certainly, to play characters that are that are meant to be. You know, uh, sort of embodiment of feminine beauty, but they don't sell themselves cheaply. You know, they're they're not scantily clad. She wasn't wearing a fur bikini, for goodness' sake. She hmm. was fully clothed in most of her scenes, but the the magical element was the charm that Lindsay Wagner brought to the character, and you couldn't help but be drawn in as the young college guy as he met her on the street in the, the beginning of the film. And it just goes from there because it's Lindsay Wagner. You can't help but fall in love with her.
3: Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, Lind- the character Lindsay Wagner plays is the daughter of Kingsfield. And this student is really taking a chance, getting involved with the daughter of uh, Kingsfield, but uh, it's a nice, it's a nice, uh, interesting final word. Is that uh, this became a television series, and they? Husband said, "You, you better cast me as Kingsfield, or I'm going to have a hissy fit." Well, of course they did cast him, and he was able to. Uh, get a lot more mileage out of the Kingsley character in a very, very good one season. It didn't last, although it came back on Showtime or something. Uh, another dozen to maybe 20 episodes long, uh, quite a bit after, actually, the original network series series. Went. And, you know, it may tell you something that people thought, you know, this TV series is so good, we're not going to let it die, because it doesn't happen often that a, a, a show bombs from lack of viewers, that some other network, in this case Showtime, said, oh, wait a minute, uh, yeah, we're going to get this, uh, because this is a freaking great series. And it was great, and uh, the only person, just so you know, that reprises their role from the, the original movie is Hausman. Uh, but anyways,
2: Paper Chase,
3: should, you next, should see it.
2: Your next film was View from the Top from 2003. Now, you had a special guest for this. Actually, this was the second time you had a special guest because you had Matt Burlingame earlier in the season, but I forgot to I forgot to mention that when we did the film that he was talking to you about, um, but um, you had Demanda Martini for View from the Top, a film with Gwyneth Paltrow and Candice Bergen.
8: Oh yes, goodness. This was a film, I, I might have been aware of it before I chose to to watch it, but it's one of those things where I saw a gently used copy at a charity shop and decided, what the heck? you know, This isn't a big bluster film, I don't need to worry about husband poo-pooing it. Because uh, that's one of our problems with being collectors, uh, Paul, is that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I will just simply want to see a film that may be not on streaming, but then I get told, this. well, we already have that, and I want a Blu-ray copy or a 3D copy. I'm like, okay, whatever. But uh, view from the top, oh, my goodness. Gwyneth Paltrow, okay, maybe she's, you know, not an an Oscar performer. But Candace Bergen in this film just steals the show because she is a uh sort of a role model and she her character has written a book about her career as a flight attendant. And um so of course we asked our dear friend demand Martini to drop in because, you know, this uh, there's a period of, of romance involved with the heyday of being a flight attendant. You yeah. know, we-
3: <laughs> and and we, we knew that the demand that would be right on top of the costuming from this movie, uh, you know, we, and the costumes are absolutely great. The hair on these women is great. And, and demand, of course, uh, set us straight on, on all that. So the, it was a lot of fun. I uh, I wasn't expecting a lot, but I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, it's got a, a nice early performance by Mark Ruffalo, if you like that kind of thing, and I do. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, but it's also, there's a fun turn by Mike Myers. Uh, there's a fun turn by Rob Lowe but it's mostly Gwyneth Paltrow's movie uh, and, and uh, Canisberg and uh, Christina Applegates in it too. There's a, another weird moment of violence in this movie. I think it wanted to be slapstick, but it was brutal. I mean, it was brutal. It pulled no punches. And I thought, Oh, oh this seems so out of place. It's the only thing I'll say, but like maybe a misstep. Uh, Because it was freaking brutal. (laughs) Although, here I'm going to contradict myself. The thing that made me laugh out loud the most, and maybe this is why they did it. This movie's been around since 2003, so I'm going to spoil it. There's a moment when Kenneth Paltrow's face is being smashed into the floor (laughs) over and over. (laughs) And it's brutal. (laughs) And then what happens? She does something like, what the, She does something that made me laugh so hard. What the hell did she do?
8: Oh, goodness. I can't remember the exact thing. She's but got a is...
3: line or something, or she's got an expression, and it, it just cracked, cracked me the hell up. But anyways, okay, that's enough of that. <laughs>
8: there, <laughs> I was bre- there was bread involved is all you need to know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's what saved her. <laughs> yeah. She didn't know the loaf of bread was cushioning the blow. That's how she was saved. That was it. They, she was, she was being smashed into a loaf of bread.
7: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh God! See, I can't. Oh my God! Uh, anyway, but, but yeah, this, yeah. this this
8: this is such a treat because, as Toppy said, Mark Ruffalo is in it well before he was associated with playing the Hulk. Or at least Bruce Banner. And you have other treats in this, too. As we said, Candace Bergen's in this. Rob Lowe is in this. Christina Applegate. And Kelly Preston, who, of course, um, you know, the world lost this past year, I believe, is John Travolta's wife. And Mike Myers is the instructor at the flight attendant school? Okay, <laughs> physical comedy, and it, it actually worked for his character too because um, he was somebody who had a vision impairment and <laughs> he wanted to achieve more in his career. But you know, the takeaway from it was that he was educating and helping people achieve their dreams.
2: The next film you covered after that was The China Syndrome from 1979 with Jane Fonda and Jack Lemmon, a a thriller.
3: Yeah, I chose this one just because you can't beat a nice thriller. 1979, The China Syndrome. Uh, It's a bit of a disaster movie, too, kind of. So a disaster thriller, if you will. James Bridges... uh, And Jane Fonda – oh, I'm sorry, James Bridges uh, directed the movie. It stars Jane Fonda, Jack Lemmon, and Michael Douglas. They're all great in it. This is a very early performance by Michael Douglas, long before he really caught on with audiences uh, from Jewel of the Nile and other later movies. Um, And it's very much Jane Fonda's uh, movie. Uh, and it's a great story, it's well told, it's expertly shot, and it's an effective thriller of a nuclear power plant that has an accident and then tries to cover it up, and the efforts of uh, reporter Jane Fonda uh, trying to get the real story from insider Jack Lemmon, um, who. who Finds out that in the construction of the place, uh, there was less than desirable materials used, and that photos that were supposed to document authentic, you know, proper materials were faked. And uh, it goes on to uh, quite a climactic conclusion. So, Uh, It fulfills being a a real thriller, and um, uh, for me, part of the fascination I have with this movie is that in real life, at the exact same time this movie was released, America had, of all coincidences, America had a nuclear plant accident. Two Mile Island had a partial. Well, they had a, a water cooling problem uh, that pretty much could have been the end, uh, and and it didn't happen, but it sure could have, and it happened exactly the same way. Uh, there's no way these are actually connected. It's just mm-hmm. a coincidence. But one of the things that sends Jack Lemon into and, and the entire room of power plant operators into a tailspin is that there's a dial that doesn't work. And Jack Lemmon's looking at it and it seems to indicate something and he taps it with his finger and suddenly the dial goes (laughs) into the red and they are in trouble. Well, it was exactly a faulty dial that wasn't working correctly that led to the real life two mile Island. Just weird. And, and this thing would lasted for days and It was really scary. I live nowhere near it, but I mean, it's close enough where I I, like it it was like, God, we really I mean, this could melt down and we didn't know if it was going to happen or not. And it was like, holy shit. (laughs) And then the movie came. The movie came out at the same time. Uh, Weird. Anyways, but most of all, it's a great thriller. So see it.
8: Yeah, this, this was on my radar for a little while before we actually got to watching it, um, certainly because I had ex- been exploring Jane Fonda's career. But I also enjoy Jack Lemmon. That was one of my father's favorite actors to follow. And so I, uh, I had had this on my watch list, and I did finally watch it for our discussion. But, you know, some of the, the fun that we have doing Matinee minutia. Is when we do our research on the actors and the producers and whatnot. And um, I uncovered a gem of an interview with Jane Fonda. And um, in this case, it was by a, uh, a Dallas personality that we talk about it. from time to time, <laughs> uh, Bob Bobby Wyant. She's a you know a, a broadcast journalist who I believe has retired in more recent years, but had quite a long career. And anyways, uh, it was just brilliant because she asked Jane Fonda uh, uh, what the experience was like researching for the role. And so, of course, she actually spent time with a reporter. But that just uh, it goes to show you what Jane Fonda brought to this role because, uh, you know, at, at its time, people knew her as the controversial celebrity who would voice her opinions of course at that time about the Vietnam conflict and so she was lending her voice to another controversy our dependence upon nuclear energy which it was I believe in its height in this period of time you know it we was. Yeah. yeah so she she played a very important part in getting this story out there and I'm sure that there were probably many people who would not have paid attention to the subject matter if it hadn't starred her.
3: Uh, And believe it or not, the real-life accident propelled people to go see this movie. So I I wonder how well it would have done had not Two Mile Island happened. Uh, Perhaps not as well, because it's a legit thriller. But but I do know that, that out of curiosity and just, like, weirdness... People flocked to this movie when the real-life accent was going on. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, Jane Fonda uh, certainly was the activist, and, and it must have certainly been part of other aside from a nice juicy film role. Uh, she probably had in mind, you know, that this was another call to, for activism. She also had a pet turtle. Sorry. Yeah, she has a pet turtle. She's so busy that she, as a pet, she couldn't even keep goldfish alive. So what (laughs) what does she have for a pet? A tortoise that roams around the house.
0: Jane, there's another uh, facet to the picture, the China Syndrome, and that is you are a woman broadcast journalist. Okay. How do you do? (laughs) Yes, how do you do? What did you think of that part? All right, Jane, I was very proud of um, certain things that you, that I felt were really Jane Fonda getting into the role of a woman broadcast journalist. Did you do
10: some homework? Did you get around with some women and talk with them and maybe you know go out with them? Sure, Heidi Schulman, Robin Groth, Christine Lund, Kelly Lang, Jackie Kin, King, a lot of the women in the LA uh, market that I knew or had the privilege of coming to know during the course of my research showed me how you do a shot from a live mini-cam, how the whole mini-cam technology works, how do you put a story together on your feet? I went out with, uh, with Robin Groth to, uh, to cover Betty Ford at some event in Los Angeles. Betty Ford never showed up, so she had to go and invent a story and watched how all of that gets done. And my respect for your work and for what you have to do and, and how hard it is grew tremendously. Uh, it also helped me to be on the other end of the microphone because I, you know, I, I, uh, I can sympathize with where you're coming from more. Jane, do you think that the kind of
0: person that you are, and especially because you do have opinions on things, do you think that you could be a successful broadcast journalist? And I mean, not doing very special things as a personality in journalism, but just doing the work-a-day
10: type things. Uh, I would find it very hard.
0: To be objective.
10: Yeah, I would find it very hard. I mean, just for example, right? When Betty Ford was coming to Los Angeles, it was uh, shortly after she had been in Iran spending New Year's with the Shah of Iran, the former Shah of Iran. And um, the woman who was going to interview her was going over the questions that she wanted to ask her about um, uh, why, for example, Betty Ford had, not Betty, uh, 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 Roz Carter, I'm sorry, Roz Carter had, said something about the fact that women were not allowed to be present during a business meeting. And I said to the reporter, I think you should ask, what the hell were you doing there in the first place? Why should the President of the United States and his wife be spending any time at all with someone like the Shah of Iran? Well, you can I would have been fired immediately <laughs> out. <laughs> but you know, I would have had a hard time pretending like it's all right for anyone that represents our country to be with a man like the Shah of Iran. That's why I don't. I'm not a journalist, but I like it. I enjoyed it. I, I think that it's it's interesting work. It uh, it's stimulating. It requires a lot of intelligence that you're not always allowed to show, but that you have to have to be good at it.
2: We're coming to the last few films now. Um, the next one is The Prestige from 2006, starring Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. It's a, a drama mystery. Yeah, I don't remember who
3: chose this.
8: I think that was your uh, idea because of the element of of, uh, illusion, if you will, in it.
3: (laughs) Yeah. I'm a huge fan of stage magic. And this is a period piece. Um, It it takes place back in the day uh, that Nikola Tesla was alive. And we know him uh, because he was an inventor and he was very curious about electricity and he did a lot of weird things with electricity that were groundbreaking uh brilliant uh etc etc he was he i mean we're talking about a real guy in history and he's played by david bowie of all people um and this is a psychological thriller legit thriller this is great we're not going to spoil nothing because uh, you can't spoil this movie. I mean, uh, it is so dependent on the point in the movie where you really find out what's going on. And it blows your mind. It blows your mind. Well, it's Christopher Nolan. He directed it. Christopher Nolan is known for blowing people's minds in his movies. Well, the 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 one that's out there right now... Uh, the the, nuke, the the guy that invented the bomb. What's that called? Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer, yeah. So uh, this is way earlier than that. But uh, he comes at it with, with, with all that. Uh, like, I mean, he doesn't do anything soft. I mean, Christopher Nolan, uh, when he wants to blow your mind, uh, he's going to blow your mind. And he does it in this movie.
8: And, you know, this um – I'm sure if somebody is a critic of period films, they could probably point out some inaccuracies here and there, who can't, if you obsess. But to me, it was a beautifully done film because you could imagine yourself in that time. Yeah. You know, the the colorings in the the, uh, clothes that were worn and the surroundings just looked like, you know, a bubble of that time. And it doesn't help... Uh, It doesn't hurt that we had some pretty faces involved, but I think what stole the show for me was David Bowie as... Tesla. Tesla. He only had a few moments on screen, but he certainly stole the show. And as we learned through researching this, um, uh, Christopher Nolan approached david bowie about doing the part and he told him he was the only person who could play this and david bowie almost passed it up so it, it, by the way
3: the plot of the prestige is two magicians in victorian london are in a feud and trying to outdo one another and they 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 resort to some really dirty tricks um because they both want to be the guy you know the the man with the prestige, and um, it's not pretty, uh, but great performances all around: Christian Bale, uh, Hugh Jackman, Michael Caine, Scarlett Johansson, and of course David Boyd. So uh, I I don't know it, it grossed. I mean it it was a success, and and people seem to like it. And uh, I'm I'm sure if you give it the prestige a try, it's very different, but it's a great. A great
8: psychological thriller. Tonight's show is not about the Jetsons, although, there is a bit of technology involved. And so, we're going to uh, briefly hop across the pond because it's a special anniversary coming up this fall. It is the 60th anniversary of a British sci-fi phenomenon known as Doctor Who. And so, joining us today, our returning guest and friend of the show, the Shy Yeti, Paul of the Shy Life Podcast.
2: Hello, I'm back.
8: Hey, I'm glad that we were able to synchronize our watches and yeah. you know, make sure that we didn't come at the same time as the tea tray. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and this is a first on the show because uh, you and Hobby Billy are actually virtually at the same table.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's good. It's good. It uh, and uh, yes, we've been part of. Uh, who
8: knowledge <laughs> uh, yes I, I am going to be competing to get a word in today because um, I was introduced to this phenomenon by my husband so I am not the authority which is why we've brought the two of you in so I, I actually had to force him to watch a few episodes
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, dear, oh dear.
8: <laughs> and we'll get into the um, the ins and outs of uh, how I came to traipse into that realm shortly. But uh, for now, I do believe that our senior showgirl is lurking about. Gertie, are you around?
3: Yeah, I got morning voice. Not that it's morning. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, boy. You don't know the sacrifices I make to be here. Anyways. Hi, Paul.
2: Hello, hi, hi Gertie.
8: You're so cute. Oh, yeah. she all she's all dolled up and wearing her Tardis blue dress. And <laughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken, that perfume is, is that lemon pledge.
7: Yeah,
3: how did you, boy? It's like you can smell me. Mm.
8: <laughs> Uh, and, well, it is the morning after, so um, <laughs> Madame, if you could get down to the stage, we're going to do this live. We have an introduction to tonight's discussion.
3: All righty, I'm on my way.
8: Oh, <laughs> well, there she goes. <laughs> Woo! Keep it on. <gasps>
3: <laughs> the doctor is a misunderstood, kindly older gentleman inventions include a mysterious time machine. While out on his rounds, a policeman mistakes the masquerading police box invention, and the group finds themselves thrust more than a century in the future when menacing gallic aliens have invaded. Will they free their time machine from the fallen rubble? Will the Doctor find his lost granddaughter? Grab your willies
4: and a It's
7: time for... Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD.
6: Take it away, fellows.
2: Well, the next film you discussed um, after this... I uh, I, I may have some <laughs> memory of myself. Huh?
3: huh I, who was our guest star? Uh, <laughs> for our
8: next, uh, there was huh? a guy with an accent. <laughs> yeah,
3: he was from a, a funny country, um, and he was spoke English, but
2: <laughs> only just.
3: He
8: talks to himself <laughs> sometimes too. I hear. <laughs> I
2: don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, oh so, yeah. We we talked about Dalek's Invasion of Earth, 2150 A.D. 1966. Well, DJ and his husband, big Doctor Who fans. Uh,
3: Me, I don't know. Doctor Who pretty much eluded me my whole life, except for the 70s when Tom uh, Baker got in there. And I I admit I was watching it then. But um, um, come to find out uh, there were two theatrically released movies, and forgive me, Paul, but they're
2: canon or they're not canon. No, they're not canon. Well, they could because they are movie versions of the stories exist in the in, in the actual series, but they're, they're movie versions. Um, so I guess in a way they're canon, but those movies aren't really considered canon. They're just big right. budget versions um, with a different. I mean peter peter cushing was never officially considered because he's playing the first he's playing a version but until that point there was only the first doctor there was only one doctor we didn't know we were going to get it was good they were going to um yeah, yeah so we were going to get sort of yeah
3: yeah to me this was just a very interesting curiosity of a movie uh i i, I can't really say much more about it than that except uh you know if you haven't seen him in your doctor who fan, you know check them out because maybe they're not canon but just an interesting take and peter cushing does a you know not a bad doctor who but you guys should talk more about it because uh, your your knowledge of, of the whole doctor who universe certainly outscales mine what what did you guys think
2: well it it, it was the second because there had been uh, had been a movie the year before the Daleks, which was actually the second ever Doctor Who story from nineteen sixty, well, end of sixty three, beginning of sixty four, and that movie had done really well. Um, The the only diff so that come out that came out in about sixty five, but you know how these, you know how fans go. um, We had Dalek Mania in the UK, um, but then that was quickly followed by Beatle Mania, (laughs) and so the time that nineteen sixty six came along. Doctor Who was sort of old news and um, was beginning to get lower ratings um, which picked up again once they kind of revitalised it by having another man come in to play the Doctor, etc. Um, but in 66 um, the Daleks weren't such a big deal and that's why in the second movie although most people think it's the better of the two films um, mm-hmm. that's why it didn't do so well in the box office but I mean it's a lot got a lot more outside Broadcast work, or at least some of its studio work, made to look like it's outside. But um, the the first film is a lot is a lot more. Well, the whole thing's studio based. But uh, yeah, DJ, what, what are your thoughts? I thought that
8: it was a um, a good vantage point for an outsider, especially somebody who may not have been as familiar with the genre. And I think that that's where we found common ground with Choppy not having seen as much of the series. And I think that that's actually an ideal scenario for somebody who's maybe producing a film, for example. Yeah. I know that in the case of things like Star Trek, they found that the programs that were the most successful to an audience were those that the average person could just walk in off the street not having experienced any of it before. So the Peter Cushing films, you know, um, they sort of present a more loose representation of the idea. You could just be an ordinary person and experience the whole culture of Doctor Who by seeing, oh, this is a kind older gentleman and they go on adventures, and he's sort of an inventor.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because at that point, they didn't even they didn't know he, and they didn't know he was going to regenerate. And in fact, I think the movie came out about the time that was being decided back in the BBC. Um, and, and also, you know, they didn't know anything about Time Lords or or, or anything like that. So. Um, they, although it had never been said that he was an inventor in the original series, that, that they were just mysterious, they they made the decision to make him a an inventor um, uh, in in the movies. Uh, yeah, and we also have have a, um, um, a, a, a one of the characters is played by Bernard Crimmins who is very very well known in the UK um, and rec- recently passed away. But he played. um the the character of Donna Noble, in in more recent Doctor Who played um, her grandfather, and um, because one of the reasons we chose this was because um, the 60th anniversary is rapidly approaching in November, and uh, there are some special episodes coming up, and it, it's hoped that Bernard Cribbins, well, he was certainly sighted on set weeks before he died, so there's hope that he, his last appearance on TV will be. Um, there would have been something that would have been captured for for those special episodes, but as we haven't seen it yet, we're not sure. But uh, right, <laughs> one can only hope. Yeah, yeah. Um, moving on to our last four films, our next choice was Contact from 1997, um, which had Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey in. I think I may have seen that at the cinema. That's drama, mystery, sci-fi.
8: Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. Well, bringing it back to Jodie Foster, because, you know, we try to do something with our favorites uh, a couple of times if uh, we if we have a reason to indulge our little alley side conversations. <laughs> and, well, Jodie Foster, of course, uh, played the lead in this. And um, Contact was my choice because it also marked a period in my life this was the first film that I owned on DVD. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Granted, uh, DVD had been out for a few years before, but I had finally decided to take the plunge by my first player. And I said to myself, I have heard good things about this movie, Contact, and it's got Jodie Foster in it. It cannot be a dud. And it's, it's based upon a novel by Carl Sagan, who's, you know famous in his own right but certainly for being a uh, pillar of the community in this part of the world in uh, in New York state uh, having taught at Cornell University um but contact oh my what an experience uh just a uh, a roller coaster ride of conversations of You know, do you believe that there is a higher power? Do you not? Do you believe in science? Do you believe in religion? Are we alone? And it's so beautifully wrapped up in the very human side of things with Jodie Foster's character, Ellie, who loses her parents at a young age. She is uh, raised by her dad, for a period and then she loses him before she's not quite an adult so this follows that story of her inspirations and aspirations and toppy uh i I think you said it so beautifully talking about carl sagan um do you want to pick it up from there
3: (laughs) well uh the science of this movie is informed by Carl Sagan who was an, a brilliant astrophysicist um, and a legend in my hometown um, and uh, and the adaptation in this movie I mean you really feel like this this could happen this is how it would happen. It starts out you know that initial, Jodie Foster's is playing um, a, a character who has a grant, and they have a limited time to turn a very powerful, powerful uh, radio telescopes, whatever they are, to space, and 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 they're they're listening, they're listening for some kind of sign that there's something out there, and it happens and they get the sign and the excitement you're right there watching it happen and you just you know you you're dj's word was correct it's an experience this is this movie is an experience and it has all you know the, the special effects uh to bolster it uh to you know everything seems real and uh, it's an experience and it is a roller coaster ride uh, and and it, it makes for a good movie. I mean, the conflict, the, the, the mystery, the performances. Uh, and for me, the, the ultimate um, uh, scene uh, at the end, it's a courtroom scene. And it's where this woman of science, and of course, informed by Carl Sagan, who suddenly has to admit that having faith in science and faith in God may not be all that different. And, uh, of course, Matthew McConaughey p- plays the character who, whose life is about God and religion. And he has a relationship with Jodie Foster, who's science. And the, br- the bringing together of this is the core of the movie. It's so well done. And Jodie Foster's performance in that courtroom scene is astounding. And... I I don't know. It just just says it all. And these are still things we don't know about. And no matter what you say, you know, Carl Sagan's right. Science is an act of faith just as much as God. And what a movie.
8: And the the show is stolen not only by Jodie Foster, but very brilliantly uh, by John Hurt, who plays a very influential role. He's uh, the deep pockets that make a lot of things possible. And, uh, you know, part of the, the backstory of his character was that um, John Hurt was told when he was researching his role that uh, Mr. Haddon, S.R. Haddon, which is his character's name is basically what you would get if Bill Gates went off the deep end (laughs) (laughs) and it was just so brilliantly played on screen in this film because uh, at a moment where Jodie Foster's character feels that she's lost everything this man who has sort of become a father figure in the sense that he's supporting her I says to her, um, you know, basically, um, you haven't lost it all. (laughs) Let's show you what's behind curtain number three.
3: (laughs) This is the way space, uh, what do I want to say, Uh, inventions or uh, improvements in space is happening. It's these millionaires. It's not NASA anymore. we, We stopped funding NASA. So who's getting it done now? Cabillionaires. Uh, And, you know, whatever you want to say about these people, uh, you know, I mean, they've advanced. I mean, we just had a a civilian rocket go up into space to the space station and bring back down some international uh, guests, uh, you know, for the last year from the space station and come back to Earth. That wasn't NASA. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, uh, so it's just it's, it's like... That that was prescient by Sagan I mean, he knew it was going to be up to the billionaires It wasn't going to be the government anymore Anyways, it's amazing
2: um, Next up, you have another sci-fi film um, Millennium from 1989 Yes, and we couldn't
3: get to a different kind of movie <laughs> from Contact <laughs>
8: <laughs>
3: Oh, Lordy
8: the, 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 Start us off, D.J. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, you you have the sort of um, hope for utopia with contact because Jodie Foster's character gets her own answers to, are we alone? And then you get Millennium, which doesn't try to answer that question, but it does tell us that, um, you know, if, if humanity doesn't take better care of ourselves in our world... Um, we're going to get what we deserve. <laughs> and so we, we have this story where, uh, you know, the, the uh, plane crash experience that unfortunately seemed more common in, uh, you know, years before recent because we didn't have the technology to analyze the faults in these planes and to prevent the, uh, you know, design uh, mistakes and such but um, we we have this storyline where somebody who is uh, an air traffic controller basically is paying attention to details. There are these accidents that are happening, these these tragedies where people are losing their lives. but on the flip side of that there's a, a distant future and uh, they've decided the best pull way, to, uh, you know, uh, replace our uh, casualties because in in that distant future, the, it's bleak. People are dying. We've poisoned the earth. Is to pluck people from places they will never be missed. If you've got a plane crash, everyone's assumed dead. So that's the last place someone's going to be missing is where they're already expected to be dead.
3: Uh, Chris Christopherson, Cheryl Ladd, had the cast. Daniel J. Tavanti's in there as well. In a lot of ways, this movie tries to be very clever, whether it succeeds or not. I'm not sure. I don't think the people making this movie quite had the skills necessary to pull it off because uh, it's genuinely hard to figure out. Okay, what? You know, there's a lot of what What, what happened? What? what? And... May even require I mean for a movie that should be you know it's like not rocket science like like contact they i I just don't think they had the skills to to help you understand like it shouldn't have taken two watches to figure out what was going on uh it could have been clever. Uh, And understandable in one watch. But it's interesting, you know, again, I would call this movie a a really interesting curiosity. Um, And, you know, if you're a fan of of science fiction, you know, this this has a lot of themes and and it does genuinely have a lot of clever things in it. Uh, It's just the storytelling is a little
8: gummed up. It, it would be interesting to see what would happen if there was an attempt to, you know, remake this story. Uh, the intentions were good, and it was a very, um, you know, entertaining film because, of course, Cheryl Ladd and Chris Christopherson, those are people you want to watch. And uh, you, you have some pretty terrific moments that make you laugh at our culture and our history because... Here is Cheryl Ladd's character from this bleak distant future where the earth is poisoned. And she's supposed to chain smoke when she's visiting the past because they, heaven forbid, her body get dependent on clean air. Right. (laughs) There's one of the most hysterical moments in the film involves that. There's a scene and she keeps um, encountering. Chris Christopherson's character, so this mysterious woman from the future keeps appearing in our time, and at different moments. So the guy that she's interacting with, Chris Christopherson's character, isn't quite sure how he knows her because he has glimpses of her from different periods, and he can't quite put it together. She eventually ends up getting him to go out on a date with her. And they're out at this restaurant. And she's just trying to do her due diligence to her body by chain smoking. And she's used to her reality where everything's modern. And they have lasers that just put out your cigarette when you flick it to the side. And they're in the restaurant at dinner. And he tells her that she smokes too much. She goes to throw her cigarette to be put out forgets that she's in 20th century earth and it goes over the balcony into the dining room right now this this
3: this is an interesting scene but it's a perfect example of gummed up storytelling because in no way do you understand without reading you know something about it why she's a fierce smoker. Well, it's because in her world, pollution is part of it and, and the, her body has become adjusted. So when she goes back in time to a less polluted air to, you know, to, I, I guess, to acclimate, she's smoking to get the pollution in her. Well, all, I, all we really see is someone who's ridiculously fiercely smoking. We, and at least I didn't connect you're supposed to, but I didn't connect. Why is this woman smoking so fiercely? Um, anyways, an, an example to me of like, okay, you're you're almost there, but you're just not getting the story told. <laughs> but it is funny. Uh, you know, again, this movie to me is a curiosity share lad. You know, I, she'll never be called the greatest actress on earth. Uh, but her fashion, we should have had... Um, demand, oh, arti- demand Martini talk about, talk about her look in the movie. Uh, it's kind of priceless and very much of its time. So, just an it, it's interesting, you know. Don't go out of your way, but if you can catch Millennium, very interesting.
8: I might have to gift Demand a copy of Millennium, and we'll we'll see if it inspires an outfit later. Right. <laughs>
4: Across the sea of stars lies another world. A world almost exactly like ours. This is where he lives. He's 27 years old, single but searching. Favorite sports, windsurfing and aikido. Favorite pastimes, cigars and sex. He has everything except fulfillment. And then one night, it happens. Hey, good buddy, how you a very sudden midlife crisis he lands in cleveland do you,
0: do you know why you were sent to me?
8: listen to me small visitor i can explain how you got here
10: maybe you're here for some greater purpose some cosmic cause
4: here he's forced to reassess his career goals
10: you went to med school
4: to explore new relationships <laughs> to redefine his self-image
6: i'm sorry we don't allow pets on the premises to adjust
4: to a changing lifestyle oh, I out! until he discovers just who he really is.
7: Oh,
4: no. A duck in big trouble.
10: That's a duck, man!
4: Howard the Duck. Trapped in a
7: world he never made.
2: Now your penultimate film hits home with The Shardback Podcast because of course we now have our own um, Talking Duck <laughs> and Ozymandias the Talking Duck Hello guys! Quack, quack, quack! Hello! Uh, <laughs> you, hey! Uh,
7: <laughs>
3: He's my favourite uh, new character on the Shaylef podcast
7: <laughs> <laughs> Oh! I'm so glad! Quack, quack, quack!
2: <laughs> um, oh, well, we'll have to get you two together at some point Um, Anyway, the film that you discussed was Howard the Duck from 1986 I presume he talks. I think I've seen it. He talks, right? Oh,
3: yeah. Well, I mean, his his beak does sort of, like, open and close. <laughs> but, boy, uh, you never forget that it's a costume. Anyway, Howard <laughs> the Duck. Legendary flop by uh, the maker of Star Wars, <laughs> George Lucas. Uh, it's stunning, and it's floppery. Uh, and again, another movie that's a curiosity. I'm really glad I saw it again. I saw it when it first came out. And uh, the uh, just real boy, what a whoo! What an intro! Whoa,
8: <laughs>
3: DJ, what do you gotta say?
8: Oh, wow, Th- this was something that was on my radar because growing up. Um, my movie going experience started with the the origin of back to the future, and so of course the uh the you know um American beauty Leah Thompson was in that, but then I realized she had done other things before Howard the Duck, not much, but Howard the Duck was made oh shortly before back to the future if not maybe at the same time. and uh, it was just one of those experiences that I caught it on TV on one of those movie channels maybe a few years after it had gone on uh, in theaters. But this was just such a fun thing for a kid to see because you've got uh, you know uh, basically a comic book adventure. Which Toppy can talk about in a sec here because it is based on a comic. But Leah Thompson, who was also in some of my other favorite 80s movies like Space Camp, and that had uh, Steven Spielberg's future wife, and I'm forgetting her name right now. But Tim Robbins, who, um, you know, more recent years has been uh, a love interest of Susan Sarandon. And uh, I, I just so thoroughly enjoyed this film. Not so much for, you know, the, the riveting acting <laughs> or the award-winning performances as it was. Things got blown up and there were evil, you know, otherworldly characters. And that's something that appeals to the attention span of a child. <laughs>
3: yes. uh, Dealey, um, I think Dealey liked it. Uh, I'm not saying don't watch this because I'm glad I saw it a second time uh, to reacquaint myself. Let me tell you what the real meta reason I, I find this movie fascinating. George Lucas wanted to do this. It was based on a comic strip written by a writer who some call a genius and other others call a hack, Steve Gerber. But he did come out with this character. It was published by Marvel Comics. It did create something of a sensation. And the value of issue number one was like the the fastest rising comic book that that just like if you if you didn't get number one, just just a year later, you were going to pay through the nose to get number one. So it, it was one of these weird phenomenons that was over with. Like before it began, because by issue 20, Howard the Duck was canceled and nobody cared. (laughs) But it was weird. It's like, just think of a Donald Duck, except he's more real and more human and more like Archie Bunker. (laughs) Uh, And there's there's nothing, you know. At any rate, here's the, the real meta reason this movie fascinates me. George Lucas really didn't have time. To do have much to do with this movie except put the money behind it he got a good friend a writer sometime director to do it and the guy just didn't have what it takes and George Lucas kind of wasn't watching and a really terrible movie was made <laughs> uh, and listen to me the really interesting thing this is what Star Wars could have turned out to be um uh, If you really dig into Star Wars history, the woman who straightened the mess that movie was, Star Wars, into something that it became, which was a sensation, was Lucas's girlfriend at the time. And damned if I can remember, but she did a lot of behind the scenes changes and and took this kind of mess and made it. The great movie it was, it was this woman, his girlfriend at the time. Um, shame on me for not knowing your name. This, this is not a secret, but maybe not a lot of people know, that uh, that the, the schedule, I mean, this was a Herculean task trying that Lucas was trying to pull off, and his mind was much more in like, how the hell are are we going to do these special effects, and then literally inventing new ways to do it but um the script lacked a lot and this girlfriend put it together and howard the duck uh, i'm just saying star wars could have been another howard the duck but uh and and what what howard the duck didn't have was a good writer making the corrections and saying by the way everything you just wrote was utterly stupid and here's why we're going to change it to make it a good movie so that's why i think it's fascinating
2: not melody hobson no thank you i only guess i'm only sorry by typing Are they have been together for a long time so yes that, melody hobson is probably the person you meant. yeah she kind of saved lucas's
3: ass didn't exactly give her any credit. So, mm-hmm. piss on him.
2: Um, now, the final um, show of season five was a film, I think I saw this at the cinema. If I didn't, then I I picked it up as soon as it went onto DVD because I remember having a lot of good press about it. But I may have seen it at the cinema. Little Miss Sunshine from 2006 uh, starring Tony Collette, who well, I was definitely a fan of her from was Wedding anyway, but uh, Greg Kinnear and Alan Arkin.
3: Yeah, again, we kind of chose this once again because Alan, uh, you know, an, an actor had passed, and Alan Arkin in this case. And both DJ and I thought, this, this is a great movie to end the season on because ultimately <laughs> uh, they have to work hard because there's some grim points in this movie. But ultimately, it's a feel-good movie. It makes you feel good. You love the characters. You care about each and every one of them. And it turns out to be this little gem of a movie that I I think is wonderfully entertaining. A, A true, true laughs, great humor. Um... But it's got great writing, great performances, and and it's got a real heart. And so I can't say enough about uh, this movie. DJ?
8: You know, this had so many elements that made it a perfect choice to end the season. Because uh, in years past, we've tried to you know, pardon the term go out with a bang. Um uh, I think that started with us doing film on Louise. But uh in its uh, essence, Little Miss Sunshine is a road trip movie. Yeah. So that uh, you know is, is a good send-off into the summer and um you know it's it's not completely a feel good movie because there are plenty of awkward dysfunctional family moments in this film and um, it should be noted that um, just from the beginning anybody who uh, has any sort of recent history with mental health issues should be warned because there there is a young man in the film who plays the brother And that's played by uh, Steve Carell, and he's just recently gotten out of the hospital for, uh, well, a suicide attempt. But the movie turns things around from that point because, you know, he he goes to live with his (laughs) sister. And the poor man is at the mercy of that family because right from the moment he steps foot in their door, he's stuck sharing the room with the with the drama of the family, the teenager yeah. who has gone on a, a, a vow of silence. <laughs>
7: yeah.
3: By the way, I don't I don't know how they got that actor to be. Look, I. If there was, it's so brilliant, but the casting is incredible. This actor, I can't remember his name. I've never seen him in anything else, but he plays this 18-year-old just about, and I think in real life he must have been probably that age because he is exactly what every guy goes through at one point through puberty coming out the other side where things just ain't right. I mean, his head's a little bigger. Uh, you know, you, you, there's just that point in every guy's life, uh, where there's this really awkward stage where things just don't look right. And they got him to do this role at exactly that time. He is so perfect. Um, and, um, Every, every every character in this movie goes through a change and it's brilliant the way um, we are introduced to this family um, with the character of the guy who committed suicide because he enters the house and so do we with him and we're introduced to this weird, dysfunctional family. They all clearly love each other, but there's some things that are wrong. <laughs> and they go on this road trip and by the end of it, um, you know you'll you'll feel good it's, oh, it's, it's worth it. and it's worship
8: and it's you know it's not really spoiling anything but there's a nice surprise at the ending and um it it just goes to show you how much of the the film is you know um the the making the the uh the setting and all the elements because there's there's a moment in the film where they're traveling in their uh, <laughs> is seriously in need of attention family vehicle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the young girl uh, who's uh, entering into a a competition, a beauty competition or a talent competition, I, I forget, it, it's the it's the title of the film, Little Miss Sunshine. She's yeah, it's a, be-
3: it. it's a beauty talent thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's, you know, these hideous things that Horrible mothers uh, put their daughters into with all that makeup and sexualizing them when they're tiny little girls. This is not the case of this girl. The parents are supporting her because she so much wants to do it. Mm -hmm. And we can see, you know, she doesn't know squat about it, really. And the mother doesn't know squat about it. So she's not, you know, they're not uh, practiced. Uh, Mother-daughter teams uh, going to these things where, you know, applying the makeup and sexualizing them the horrible way they do. This mother doesn't know how to do any of that. She just wants to support her daughter, who also doesn't know anything about it. But she's got a good coach, Alan Arkin, uh, her her grandfather. He won an Oscar for this, you know, and so nice that he finally won one. And this was a great movie to win it for.
8: And the, the true gem of the experience of watching this film is knowing that the little girl in the family car has her headphones on, intently listening to what we later learn is going to be her performance at this event, and... <laughs> And her grandfather played by Alan Arkin is just getting one line in after another about his true feelings about the situation and his in-laws and the little girl in apparently real life uh, was listening to music because they didn't want her to hear the vulgarity coming out of Alan Arkin's mouth.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The, The performances are very authentic. I mean, How they got that girl to do what she did, or that teenage, uh, awkward boy to do what he did. But boy, it works. And, uh, you know, Alan Arkin's character seems to be the only one who's speaking the truth. And by the end, you know, everybody kind of finds their truth in one way or another. So pretty great movie.
8: Yeah, and just a side note, as we were talking about this, I wanted to know the name of the young actor who played the uh, the dysfunctional kid who wouldn't speak. Paul Dano played the uh, the brother of the, the main character, and uh, you'd be interested to know, Toppy, that Paul Dano was actually—and I, I haven't seen this, by the way. I bring it up because uh, our listeners deserve to know what else we would recommend— <laughs> <laughs> Paul Dano was more recently in the 2022 called The Batman with Robert Pattinson, and Paul Dano played the Riddler. Okay. So okay, so
3: that. he's 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 like a legit actor. he's, he's got a career. You would never. I mean, you swear the the his performance is so real in like this. It's hard to believe that's an actor.
8: Mm-hmm. It really is. So now I want to see that Batman, that newer Batman
2: film. <laughs> yeah. Weird. <laughs> well, guys, um, we've come to the end of season five of Batman Minutia. Um, uh, of course, listeners, I should say, this has only been a, a review of the episodes, um, Topping DJ covered. There are full hour plus episodes, um, discussing each of the films that they we've covered briefly. Today and uh so do encourage yeah. you to listen to and those. That, <laughs> and by the way, we do it
3: live. DJ, maybe maybe someone's listening will wanna join us on our new season, which is only gonna be a week away now. Uh or well, we're not sure when this comes out. So uh check your local listings. It's matinee <laughs> Matinee Minutia. We're terribly sorry that we chose two of the most hardest words to spell in the English language <laughs> but we did Matinee Minutia uh, but Gigi, people can be there live but tell them how to do it
8: certainly so if you go to Matinee Minutia m a t i n e, e Minutia M-I-N-U-T-I-A-E I'm not spelling it again dot com mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it's the first and third Friday of each month at 9 p.m. Eastern So that would be, um, depending on time changes, at about 2 o'clock there in the UK. And, um, you know, you can participate in our chat room, which is on Discord. That's that favorite thing of all the gamers out there where they can send pictures to each other back and forth. And some people even use it to talk to each other. Uh, But that's the chat part of it. And sometimes we dress up and do silly things on camera. That's the YouTube part. You can, you know, you could just uh, open up your YouTube and listen to us if you are doing your housework or, you know, uh, anything else you need to do, get your lunch ready for work the next day. Or you could actually just watch us because, uh, well, I have funny hats and costumes. (laughs) He certainly does.
2: (laughs) Well thank you once again and uh, we'll speak to you both again soon and uh, Topia I'll, I'll I'll arrange that meeting with uh, Ozymandias at some point thank you I am looking quack. To- <laughs> <laughs> Paul thanks
3: for having us again and for letting us uh, you know strutter stuff for the UK audience and tell more people about that uh, Mnuchin.
2: Oh, thank it was you very much.
8: a joy and a privilege, sir.
2: <laughs> Speak to you again soon. Bye bye for now. Bye. you can tell us um i think by the time this goes out perhaps the first episode of have, have, have gone i'm hoping to, to put this out before the end of september but, well
3: uh. something really different
2: happened this year in
3: that we for the past five years or whatever we picked things as we went along like we couldn't have been able to tell you the movies we're going to be doing but this year um, in an odd way, um, turns out we've got the whole season planned out, which is very different for us.
8: Yeah, we, we kind say. of picked up the breadcrumbs that we left to the side as we were uh, curating our seasons and we've decided, hey, we've got a whole picnic basket here from all the hors d'oeuvres and appetizers, so let's, uh, you know, do as good junk food junkies do and make a meal of it. So <laughs> we, um, we're going to be starting off the season with a mid-to-late 80s uh, comedy, uh, not so much drama, but it's going to be a... a, a A revisit to the careers of young actors in the 60s, Annette Funicello and um, Frankie Avalon are going to be coming back to the scene for one more adventure on the beach in uh, tribute to Paul Rubens, who we recently lost, uh, famous for the role of Pee Wee Herman. We're watching Back to the Beach as our season premiere, and we have a few, uh, you know, ideas for different occasions, but I can also tell you, this is breaking news, folks. I have confirmation. We have another collaboration with our favorite uh, cosplay drag artist from the Mid-Atlantic. Demanda Martini is going to be joining us for our, um, well, around about Halloween time Discussion, and uh, that's actually going to be sci-fi inspired, but you'll you'll get the um, details of that as we dip our oh, seasons. Oh, tell okay.
3: what we're doing!
8: We're going to be discussing Buck Rogers in the 25th century, and I would be hard-pressed to, uh, you know, not imagine Demanda having her own take on Wilma, uh-huh. Linda, uh, what's her name's name? Uh, anyways, yeah. the the, uh, the lady in the tight spandex from the Buck Rogers in the 25th right. Century series. Yeah, this
3: is the 70s TV series. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, what can you say about it? It's a hoot. And looking back on it, um, there's all kinds of things to laugh about. Um, <laughs> ah, and it even got a theatrical release because this was on the Tales of Star Wars. And Battlestar Galactica got a theatrical release, and they said, "Well, damn it, we've got sp- spaceships flying and shooting at things. Put it on the screen." So they did, and I, that may be how people in the UK saw it as a as a theatrical release movie.
2: Yeah, it was only on it was only on TV, but it may, may have got um, I, I was a little bit too young to remember. Oh,
7: ha.
8: <laughs>
3: Anyway, so we got lots of good things coming
8: I uh, mean, I want to say that Buck Rogers Was probably the inspiration for the more recent sci-fi series Farscape Because you have uh, kind of an astronaut character that's flung into the future Yeah, I mean, that's, that's
3: yeah, that's Buck Rogers Man of our time, thrown, uh, somehow thrown into a far, far-flung future
2: well, guys, thank you very much for telling us all about Pew Pew 5. I'm sorry. <laughs> and we look forward to season 6 and talking about season 6 um, at, the end of, at the end of the season. Um, anyway. All...
8: Sorry. And you know, Paul, the the real surprise is going to be when we unlock the doors of the marionette for our new season. Because we, we, uh, we, we take our little sabbatical because uh, it's an old building, and we don't quite have the money for the air conditioning. And uh, well, who's to say our senior showgirl hasn't snuck into? Uh, Take a little off the top, if you know what I mean.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do this. Uh, both of us traveled to Spudsplat, New York, to do this live, and it's at the Marionette Theater, an old, uh, really old theater that's somehow uh, being preserved by a very rich guy. And our concessions lady, um, is, well, she's with us at every show. It's, it's, it's an experience.
8: Has it? She comes with the building. <laughs>
1: It's been good, but yeah, definitely time to come home now. Wow.
3: Really? No kidding.
2: Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. (laughs) Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.
4: This show is part of the Pride 48 Network.
3: Find
8: more shows over at pride48.com.
7: Oh What's going
8: on now? Oh, it's the Shy Life Podcast. Let's go.
3: I have a voice. I have a voice.
2: You have a voice. You have a voice. We have a voice. We have a voice.
9: Have a voice. Unique voices in podcasting.
2: Universepods.net
8: That is so Korean. Oh my
3: You're a man of culture as well. <laughs>
2: So, Paul, how's it going? Oh, it, it, it's fine. We've been recording about Matinee Minutia Season 5. Oh, Matinee Minutia Season 5. Oh, well, uh, uh haven't they started their sixth season yet? They have. They have. It, it's starting. They're going to be telling us about that as well. Are they now? Well, it's, uh, it's all, it's all go. When, when do they talk about the Shallow podcast on Matt Minutia? They, they don't, get Uncle John. That's not the way it works. Does it not? No, it doesn't. We can talk about anything on Sharlow podcast, but Matt Minutia talk about films. They're not going to be talking about us unless we make a film. Oh, I see. Uh, very interesting. Well, I've got things to be doing. I'll leave you to it. Yes, please do, because the guys will be back in a minute to, to tell us about season six. Oh, we do not want to get in the way. No, no, it's fine. Oh, dear.
3: Oh, my God, there's nothing I like better is when another new episode of the Shy Life Podcast comes out.
7: <laughs>
4: Holy crow, that was a long episode.
1: Oh, I think that was a wonderful episode, don't you copy it. I sure do Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since 669, 669, 669, 669.
3: This is just the weirdest thing I've ever heard. That was a long one today, huh, folks?
1: Good day, esteemed listeners. Pray, mark your diaries for the 15th to the 17th of September, for you shall want to be in attendance at pride48.com. We cordially invite you to our grand dénouement, the 15th and indeed final annual podcasting gala. Join us as we traverse the kaleidoscope of our community, featuring delightful LGBTQ and LGBTQ-friendly podcasts from the illustrious Pride 48 lineup, as well as a few surprises. It's your last opportunity to be part of this extraordinary event. Should you desire further particulars, visit the Pride 48 website. Don't forget, dear listener, September 15th to the 17th. Don't miss your opportunity to partake in this splendid celebration. Only (laughs) at pride48.com. Et
9: voilà